Welcome to the May 2020 edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Luminator, Beef Extension Specialist at Purdue University Department of Animal Science. The highlights of this edition are in headline news. We're going to focus on understanding the market disruptions as a result of COVID-19. In the Ask Dr. Ron segment, we're going to focus on marketing fed cattle, which is kind of a follow-up to the headline news stories. In management tips, we're going to focus on early grazing season considerations. In upcoming programs and events, we're going to focus on webinars that may be of interest to you. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva, who have graciously underwritten this program. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built, and to build upon those foundations. To help you care for your land, to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it. To help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come. Corteva AgriScience. In headline news, COVID-19 has put significant pressure on the beef supply chain from farm to consumer. What we've seen is processing plants either slow down or even close for periods of time. What we have is a packing plant capacity of about 98,000 head per day, if you think about this on a national scale. It's estimated that about 150,000 head per week are backlogging. Okay, which has now created about 600,000 head of cattle that should have been harvested that are still sitting in feedlots. Our feedlots are full, and that then turns around and backs up our uh, background in stocker operations. What we have is about 600 to 800,000 head of feeder cattle that have not been placed in feed yards. The packer has become the bottleneck in this scenario. Okay, fed cattle are available. Okay, in the feedlots but we have limited shackle space in the packing plants to be able to handle those cattle because of the slowdown. Packer demand for cattle is then, as a result, down, and the price that they're willing to pay for cattle decreases. On the consumer side, we've got demand for beef, and it remains at a high level, but we have a limited supply to purchase and what, we've, what we're seeing is that retailers are willing to pay more for beef to be able to get it and that then translates into increased prices paid to, to packers, and we'll talk more about that here in just a little bit. But the beef price to consumer is then, as a result, increased. If we look at um, the weekly data through May 2nd, what we see is a significant drop in meat production. And this is, if you look at the yellow line, it's chicken. The cattle line is the red line, and hogs is kind of the brown line. What we've seen is about a 40%, almost a 40% drop in meat production because of the slowdown in the processing plants. 
If we look specifically at USDA steer and heifer slaughter, uh, since early April, end of late March, early April, uh, where we peaked in terms of slaughter, and we took a, a nosedive plunge and we've been down about 45% as a, as at, in early May, at the end of April, early May. And what we've seen is a, a little bit of an uptick here in the, in, in the last few days uh, as these packing plants start to evolve back into more normal production. If we look at, at carcass weights, Last week, steers were 37 pounds heavier and heifers were 24 pounds heavier than they were a year ago. So what we're seeing is a decrease in the number of animals going into harvest, but the animals that do make it to harvest are heavier, and that offsets a little bit of the demand okay, from the consumer side. If you look at the marketing margin for beef, which is really defined as box beef minus live cattle price on a dollar per hundred weight basis, what you see is that, that we saw a blurb um, last fall, okay, when the Tyson plant fire in Holcomb, Kansas, all right, so prices, the price spread between live and box beef prices went up. And then we kind of leveled back off. We, we started to see uh, uh, an increase, okay, when COVID-19 was announced. And you can see what the line looks like over on the far right-hand side of the graph. It's, it, the margin has become very big. That is a concern to some people, all right? If you look at um, the change in farm versus retail prices, retail prices have gone up about 67%, while um, farm prices, okay, for fed cattle, has dropped about 24%. In early April, a group of pretty highly respected ag economists from around the country, Daryl Peel from Oklahoma, uh, Dustin Ahrens from Rabo Bank, uh, Randy Block from uh, Cattlefax, uh, Kenny Burdine from uh, University of Kentucky, Don Close from Rabo Bank, uh, Amy Hegemeyer from Oklahoma State University, Josh Maples from Mississippi State, James Rode at uh, Livestock Marketing and Glenn Tyser from Kansas State put together a report that basically said that the COVID-19 damages to the beef industry totaled about 13.6 billion. Now that, those numbers may change, but this was at least the early estimate of kind of what was going to happen from an impact perspective. On the cow-calf side, on a mature cow equivalent basis, it looked like the dollar per head decline was about $112, and long term, as we think about going out into the weaning season and uh, next fall, that number could actually jump to about $135 a head. On the stocker side, it looks like the dollar head decline is roughly about $160, and on the feedlot side, about $106. Now, when packing plants shut down or slow down, what we do know is, is that producers, and particularly in this case, the feedlots are worse off, all right? In early January, the, the expectation was is that the feedlots were gonna be profitable at about $40 a head. In late April, that really changed, and it looks like we're gonna have somewhere in the neighborhood of about $200 a head loss. The consumers are also worse off. Now, what we don't know is what the packer cost is to operate at 
at closed down capacity, in other words, zero capacity, or if they would bump up to maybe even 80% capacity. Nationally, we're about 60% capacity right now. If you, and this is where the bone of contention comes, all right? And this is really uh, the uh, uh, Packer profits as, as estimated, all right? Now, you have to take a little bit of this with a grain of salt because this assumes that the Packers are working at near optimal capacity. They're not, all right? But if you look at the graph, it would suggest that here in uh, mid-April that the packing plants were making something over $700 a head, all right? That probably has got to be tampered a, a little bit because of fixes that they've had to retrofit it back into the plants, putting plexiglass between workers, spreading workers out, et cetera, and, and obviously they're not working at capacity. So if you look at maybe a better indicator of where the packing plants are at is what their stock market prices are. And this isn't a true reflection of their profitability, but it probably comes better than, than making some of the, the assumptions that go into uh, packer profitability. If you look at this graph, I've highlighted the black line, all right, and that is Tyson stock. I've also highlighted in, in pink the JBS stock, all right. Notice that both of those lines run fairly close together and they're significantly under the S&P 500. This would suggest that packers are also worse off than, than maybe what we give them credit for. In other headline news, NCBA and state cattlemen's associations have done a great job of lobbying the Department of Justice, Secretary Purdue at USDA and President Trump. On April 28th, President Trump signed an executive order to keep packing plants operating at near capacity. That's huge because that's the bottleneck between our production side and what the consumer can see in terms of product. Uh, this should help give some relief to some of the feedlot backlog. And remember we said we're probably backlogged by about 600,000 head. On May 6th, President Trump also asked the Department of Justice to investigate whether or not meat packers have violated antitrust laws. In other words, have they been involved in price manipulation leading to low fed cattle prices and high box beef and retail prices. Another part of the headline news that I think is worthy of mention, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but this whole issue of price discovery, and I think we, we all agree that price discovery has is, is become an issue. There are some groups that are promoting a 30-14 rule. And what that means is, is that they're promoting that packers buy at least 30% of the cattle that they process on the open market on a live basis. And that they would have 14 days from the time that they buy those cattle to harvest those cattle. Also floating around is a 50-14 rule, all right? Uh, in fact, there's some legislation that has been proposed in Washington that would say the packers need to have 50% of the cattle that they harvest uh, paid for on a live weight basis as opposed to formulas, grids, okay, and other negotiated arrangements and still have 14 days. In the show notes below this video, 
I'd, I'd encourage you to read a letter from Dr. Steve Coons, who's an ag economist at Colorado State, who really spent a lot of time talking about this 3014 rule and what its implications really mean. Another issue that's been floating around is the resurgence of the mandatory cool uh, situation. Remember we had that for about six and a half years. Consumers really never voted positively for that for uh, with their pocketbooks. And I would encourage you to read, again in the show notes below, the NCBA position okay, on, on mandatory cool as it's being proposed and being discussed by different groups within the industry. I'm going to I'm going to put in a sidebar here in that I think uh, Steve Kuntz's letter and the NCBA position for for all of this is spot on and I would I agree 100% with those positions. Another issue that's been circulating around in the in the industry is this whole idea should we be importing beef cattle, you know, uh, or beef products and what is that doing to our to our market and there is an import-export frequently asked question um, piece that I've also put in the show notes. It's from NCBA that I think does a really good job of kind of explaining where we're at with imports versus exports and why both of those are important to, the, uh, to our industry but also specifically to our consumers as well. Another issue that's been floating around is uh, a beef alliance proposal. And these are producers out west that have proposed a voluntary and temporary set-aside program. This, this uh, idea is floating around Washington, D.C., and will, it remains to be seen whether this will uh, uh, have any traction. But basically, the idea is that it would reduce the packer bottleneck. It's modeled after the Canadian 2003 BSE outbreak program that was actually quite successful in Canada. The idea is, is that cattle would be paid for being put on a maintenance diet for 75 days. The proposal says $2.90 per head per day payment okay, for that, 90 to five, that 75 day period. It would be a program administered by the USDA and there would be an advisory committee that would be put in place that would, that would help determine whether cattle ought to be increased flow, in other words, early release from the 75 days or not, okay, depending on how the packer uh, production lines come back on into uh, full capacity. And the funding for that would come from the next round of the stimulus package. So again, this one kind of just as a head, heads up, um, I don't know where this is going to go, but uh, these are things that are being discussed. In the Ask Dr. Ron segment, I've had a producer that's called wanting to know with the packing plant closures and slowdowns due to the COVID-19 pandemic, he was having trouble finding a place to market his finished steers and heifers at a profitable level. So the question is, what could he do? Well, you have to understand a couple things. Number one is packers take committed cattle first. So these cattle that are on forward contracts, that are on formula grid pricing uh, and negotiated financial arrangements, 
those cattle are going to go into the packing plant first. That means then that the live bid cattle come in second. Right? The week ending May 2nd, slaughter was down 38% year over year. And over the last four weeks, it was down 26%. Live bid cattle sales have been limited. The only two major packers that have been in the live cattle bidding market is Cargill and JBS. The other major packers have, have been working on their formula and, and, and uh, grid-based kind of cattle uh, and negotiated cattle. One of the problems with holding cattle, all right, and in and, and this whole backlog situation, is that we're going to lower average daily gains as they pass their target weight. That means that feed efficiency is going to get poor. We're going to move from a feed efficiency of maybe six or seven pounds of feed per pound of gain all the way up to maybe 10 or 12 pounds of feed per pound of gain. And efficiency is a major economic driver on the feedlot side. Carcasses on, head cat, on held cattle, um, we have to be really concerned about weight discounts, yield grade four and five discounts because the cattle are too fat. And one of the things that we're probably going to see and, and we are seeing is that choice and prime cattle probably are going to go up a little bit because with a longer time on feed, marbling is going to increase. Now, in times of depressed markets, okay, and we've seen this before when markets have gone down and, and cattle feeders have just taken that kind of the idea, I'm going to hold the cattle for a while and hope that prices go up, all right? And that's a little bit about where we're at today. One of the concerns that uh, we need to be considering if we're going to hold cattle is that heavyweight carcass discounts are pretty significant. And that starts to take place when we have 1,000-pound carcasses, okay, resulting from about 1,600-pound live weight cattle or above. And I've, what I've done is I've used about a 63% dressing percentage to make that calculation. Some packing plants have an upper end of 1,000-pound carcasses. Others have 1050 upper weights. And if it was 1050 using a 63% dress, that means that the live weight conversion is about 1675. So when we got cattle approaching that 1,600-pound market, we need to be thinking about, okay, what are we going to do with those? And maybe we're going to have to market them, okay, at the discount, so at a discounted price, so we don't receive further discounts because of heavy weights. The other problem with the heavyweight carcasses is that they're more subject to bruising because these cattle are wider, they're taller, and they don't fit through the handling facilities, the doorways of, of uh, trucks and, and, and transportation. And, and so we have an increased bruising potential on these heavier carcasses. On the, on the yield grade side, the longer we feed cattle, the more opportunity there's going to be for these cattle to go to yield grade four and five. Uh, and those two represent a significant discount because of the overfat carcasses. The other problem that we've got with fat cattle is that we're now about ready to go into the heat stress period, right? We're going to enter in June here pretty soon, okay, on into July, and heat stress increases death loss on these heavyweight cattle and particularly these cattle that are black-hided. The other problem with these really heavy, fatter cattle is acute interstitial pneumonia, or AIP, susceptibility, and so we could see uh, increased uh, pneumonia scenarios as a result of that. Now, for cattle that are market ready, what do I do? 
Some producers can capitalize on reserve processing slots at the local, the local packing plants, but understand that there's limited opportunities across the state to be able to slot cattle in these local processing plants. Most of the packers that I've talked to across the state have said that they are booked out through August, October, November, and we've got some of the processors that are booked out until after the first of the year. So there are no other slots to be able to move cattle into that situation unless you have a reserve spot. Okay, currently. Main, uh, the other problem that we've got with market-ready cattle is the high maintenance cost. Okay, it takes a lot of feed just to maintain a 13, 1,400, 1,500-pound steer, and we know that the feed conversions are going to be poor. One of the recommendations would be to top your lots, those, those really heavy cattle and the cattle that are approaching yield grade fours and fives need to probably be marketed irregardless of what price is in the marketplace. Okay, because the discounts for yield grade four and five cattle and heavyweight carcasses on top of a depressed market is going to be significant. If you have cattle that are still growing but not finished, you might consider slowing down average daily gain to make them finish at a later date. Growth of at least two and a half pounds per day is still recommended because if we drop below that two and a half pound per day average daily gain, we will start to take out some of the marbling capability. And, and obviously that will have an effect on quality grade. Another strategy is to reduce ration energy or go to something that we call program feeding. If we drop the net energy per gain to somewhere between 0.5 and 0.55 megacals per pound of, air dry, of, of dry feed versus our typical 0.6 to 0.63 megacals of NEG per day, we could slow those cattle down to about 2.5 pounds a day gain. What that really means is that we need to reduce the corn and add high fiber feeds. Adding somewhere around 7.5 to 10% more roughage to the diet or looking at maybe 40% corn silage or maybe 15% dry hay to these rations, okay, is, is a strategy that we might consider. I would highly recommend that if you're going to think about slowing these cattle down, that you work with a nutritionist to make sure that you've got rations balanced so that we don't drop significantly below that 2.5 pound benchmark. Another strategy that producers can use is to feed a little higher energy level of 0.55 to 0.58 megacals of NEG per pound of dry feed, okay, and limit feed it to maybe something like 90%, 85-90% of ad libitum, okay, or expected feed intake, if you will. We know that any of these strategies is going to probably have a negative effect on feed efficiency. Another strategy that I would highly recommend if you're going to try to stretch these cattle out and hold them a little bit longer is to continue to use ionophores like Lumensin or Bovitec. What they do is they, they will help prevent some bloat, acidosis, and they will help improve feed efficiency without having a positive effect on increasing average daily gain, which is what we're trying to basically hold down. If you're thinking about using beta agonists like Optiflex, I would probably not recommend using those. I'd probably take those out of the ration simply because they increase carcass weight, they increase average daily gain, and obviously the positive side is that they increase muscle, 
but that's probably not where we want to go in today's marketplace if you're going to try to hold some cattle. The other strategy that I would I would encourage you to think about is not re-implanting cattle. Okay, for that final implant again, implants will help you on the feed on feed efficiency, but they also increase average daily gain, and that's probably counter to what we're trying to accomplish if we're going to try to hold these cattle for a little longer duration. In the in the show notes below, I would encourage you to look at a fact sheet. Uh, considerations for slowing feedlot cattle growth due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is in the show notes below. In this month's management tips for May and early June, if you haven't already done so, now's a great time to be thinking about getting a breeding soundness evaluation on your bulls before they before you turn out. Uh, time is short if, if the bulls don't pass, okay, to find a replacement, but bulls are still available in the marketplace. Another consideration is observation, okay? This is one thing that sometimes we, we kind of ignore. Cattle are out on pasture, things are good, but sky is blue, grass is green, everything's going good. But I think I would really encourage you to think about looking at, at your cattle on a frequent basis and are the bulls finding and breeding cows? A second one is, do I have any pink eye or lameness issues that need to be addressed? I had a producer back several years ago that that uh, had trouble finding this bull. Well, the bull was found under a shade tree across the fence and the neighbors. The, the bull was double blind because of pink eye. Um, that During the breeding season, that's probably not where we want to be. Another uh, observation are cows returning to estrus, all right? That's kind of an indication of whether the bulls are working. Obviously, we would expect 60, 65% of the cows to breed with one service. So there's going to be 35 to 40% of the cows returning. But if you start to see a lot of cows returning to estrus, okay, you might start questioning whether your bulls are working correctly. Another one is hair shedding, all right? We don't often talk about this, but... Um, these cattle ought to be shed off pretty well by uh, early to mid-June, all right? So that winter hair needs to be shed off. If we start thinking about, you know, mid-June and beyond and the cattle still have a heavy winter hair coat or at least remnants of a, of a winter hair coat, uh, that's going to have a negative effect on reproduction. So you might make note of those cows that uh, hold on to their hair a little bit too long and make a note whether uh, those cows had had that situation and maybe whether or not those cows actually bred back. Those might be potential cull candidates come this fall after weaning time. In the case of soil fertility, now is a great time to be doing soil sampling and applying amendments before it starts to get hot and dry. We would like for those uh, soil amendments like N, P, and K, okay, to be uh, put back into the soil and particularly nitrogen. Uh, we need to do that and if you're, you're using urea, which is highly volatile. So think about nitrogen on grass pastures and hay fields, okay, to stimulate kind of that second round of regrowth, uh, and P and K on legume and uh, hay fields in particular. Other management considerations are calf hood vaccinations. You know, think about the Clostridia black leg vaccines for your calves. 
Uh, it's usually those really good calves uh, that are rapidly growing that are, are probably most susceptible. Sure hate to lose those because they didn't give a Clostridia vaccine. Uh, and I think it's also time to think about preparing for your pre-weaning vaccinations come the end of the breeding season. So you might start getting these uh, supplies in place at this point and then storing them correctly. Uh, another issue is controlling seed heads or maturity of the forage. Uh, plants in a vegetative state are much more nutritious, okay, they're, they're higher in energy, higher in protein than if those plants go to a reproductive state. And if we take care of the seed heads, we also reduce irritations that can cause uh, or at least be a component of why pink eye uh, results. Flies with uh, uh, that are contaminated with the max bovis or max uh, uh, the max complex of, of uh, bacteria uh, and mechanical injury to the eye, i.e. seed heads, dust, those kinds of things are one of the, and then ultraviolet sunlight, okay, are kind of the three components. I don't know that we're going to see this this year, but last year when seed heads were forming, we did have some ergot potential in some of our cool season grasses. Uh, something to kind of watch for in our rye uh, that some of you may still be ready to or about ready to make. Maybe if we've got some seed heads, you might look at those heads. Okay. The issue here is is that ergot was a problem in some areas last year. Those spores can can stay in the soil, and if soil conditions are right this year, we could see an increase in ergot, particularly in the seed heads, by controlling seed heads. We can we can uh, minimize the problem of cattle either grazing it or in the case of haze uh, or harvested forages um, without seed heads the ergot problem should be pretty well diminished and then the last issue is think about how you're going to control flies either back rubs uh, ear tags uh, sprays pours ons I would caution you however be really, really careful about using only partial doses of uh, deworming compounds or anthelmintics because that can create some uh, uh, resistance to those internal parasites. So I would use products that are, that are designed for control of flies and not use partial doses of those that would con might control some flies but are really designed for internal parasites. Coming programs and events, I'd like to point you to several webinars that you might find interesting. The first one is the USDA Ag, Ag Marketing Service and Farm Service Agency webinar for farmers, ranchers, and other producers interested in applying for direct payments through the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, which was held Thursday, April 14th, which is after or before this edition comes out, but the webinar was recorded and can be found at the website shown here, and I've got it put into the show notes below this video. Other upcoming programs is the Cattle Facts Trends webinar that's going to be held May 20th at 7.30 Eastern Time. It's going to talk about cattle and feedstuff projections, and then the annual cow-calf survey. Again, all of these programs are listed in show notes below. 
There's four webinars from the uh, Near Infrared Reflective Spectroscopy Consortium to be held between May 26 and June, uh, and early June. And it, it's a really a four part series and you have actually multiple times to watch the last couple of these at least, dealing with forage analysis, an overview of NIRS and its benefits, NRS, NIRS versus wet chemistry and then repeatability. So if you're concerned about forage testing and feed testing, and it's an NIR analysis that was done to, to determine the nutrient profile, this is really a good seminar to, uh, or webinar that, that you might want to consider. Again, in show notes below. Another webinar that uh, might be of interest to you is the Board of the Indiana Board of Animal Health uh, has Indiana has Indiana Ag Industry discussions on COVID-19 every Friday noon, uh, and so you might want to tune into that. There's a Western Region Beef Cattle Marketing Update on May 20th at 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time. Again, these programs are listed in the web uh, in Websites are listed in the show notes below. Another one that looks intriguing to me uh, is the intersection of cattle and beef industry. So it's really looking at the, at the live animal versus the product side of our industry. Uh, these uh, webinars are held during May and June. Okay, and you can kind of look at these dates. But the topics include in-depth uh, perspectives on euthanasia. The swine industry is is probably going to have to euthanize a bunch of hogs because of their backlog. Cattle industry, maybe, um, but probably uh, if we can if we can do some holding strategies that we talked about earlier in the in the in this show, um, hopefully we can get around that. Uh, uh, in depth perspective of local meat uh, challenges and opportunities, marketing local beef. Uh, the beef checkoff, price discovery and value discovery, ground beef, heavy carcasses in imports, domestic and international demand, historical overview of the beef industry, how beef is supplied to the grocery store and restaurants, steer and heifer complex, cow and bull complex, drop credits, hide and off all credits, and a virtual packing plant tour is kind of an intriguing one that, again, you can sign up for these uh, webinars uh, in the show notes below. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.